We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello podcast listeners, I'm Connor and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. I'm delighted to say that this week we were joined by Professor Neil Ferguson, historian and author who many of you will remember was on the podcast about two years ago to discuss his book The Square and the Tower. Well this time he came back to discuss what history can teach us about the COVID-19 pandemic. Yes, Ferguson is not just an expert in the crises of the past, but since March has been meticulously collating and analysing data about our current pandemic. He joined us for a live event on our new subscription service Intelligence Squared Plus, where he spoke to Oxford professor Rana Mitter about which countries got their reaction to the virus right, what are our prospects for a strong economic recovery, and what are the chances for a vaccine in the next year. So some fascinating questions which we would all like answers to. And a quick reminder, if you do enjoy this event and want to join us for our upcoming events and ask your questions live to the speakers and even have your name read out right here on the podcast, go to intelligencesquared.com slash plus and subscribe today with a special podcast discount of 20% off using the code podcast. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T. It's a great way to support Intelligence Squared and learn from some of the most brilliant minds. And a final note, this event took place on June 30th, 2020. Now to the episode. Hello to everyone from around the world who's joining this Intelligence Squared Plus event. And it's a huge pleasure to be able to introduce this evening one of Britain's best-known historians, who is, of course, resident across the pond in the United States, where he's joining us from today. Here's, of course, Neil Ferguson. Now, today's topic is looking at the way in which history can help us to understand the COVID-19 pandemic. And Neil, a huge pleasure to be talking to you. And I have to say, I couldn't think of a better person to be tackling this topic, not least when I was sent in advance what I think you call your pandemic deck of slides, which I think is uh, getting up to close to a thousand slides, which must make for quite a PowerPoint. I, I imagine you have to hold your audience hostage in, in a sense. But it's part of what you call the pandemic encyclopedia. And I'm wondering, what were you thinking when you put this together? As a historian, were you sort of creating your own archive in the moment for when we can look back on this pandemic as a historic event? Well, thanks, Rana. It's great to be with you. And uh, one of the little silver linings in the cloud of the COVID-19 pandemic is that one actually has more exchange with people in distant places than before. I've noticed that my my intellectual network has been uh, really quite radically changed by the fact that I'm stuck in one place, but able to Zoom or otherwise just about everywhere. The the key to this uh, monstrous PowerPoint deck is that it's not intended to be shown as as a PowerPoint presentation. It's just the way I take notes. And it, it has been the way that I take notes about for, for about 10 years uh, since the global financial crisis, uh, I found that the way I could best keep track of history in real time was just to use 
PowerPoint. And that's because I'm a graphs person, as you know, Ran. I love to illustrate points with graphs. And so the simple thing is just to grab them wherever I see them and, uh, and grab text uh, that I think might one day be quotable. So these are my notes. And I, in this particular case, I started to compile notes on COVID-19 in mid-January because I, I, I was at the World Economic Forum and I was stunned to find this was in the middle of January, that almost nobody there wanted to talk about the impending pandemic. They wanted to have the usual conversation about climate change. And I had just been in Asia in the second week of January. I'd been in, in Hong Kong, Singapore and Taipei. And it was very clear the conversations that I had there and the things that I was reading, that we were in the very early stages of a global pandemic. I wrote about it in my column for the Sunday Times. But the, it was the scepticism that I encountered at Davos that made me start this particular deck. So I thought, well, I, I'm going to write about this. I might as well start taking notes. And after a while, I realized that I was essentially performing a, a, a kind of public function. I was doing research pretty intensively every day, usually for several hours, reading everything that I could get on the subject, not just of the virus, but more importantly to me, the social networks that it was attacking. And you mentioned the book, The Square and the Tower, that the central theme of that book is that a networked world is, is vulnerable to contagions and not just digital ones. It, after a certain point, I realized that I was doing something so useful, I might as well share it with friends. And, and so I conducted a kind of experiment in network science, which was I just sent it to all my friends. And I told them it wasn't for publication because there were lots of copyright material there. It's just purely for educational purposes. But they were welcome to share it with anybody of their friends that they thought would find it useful. And, and it's now grown to I think it's not quite at 900 slides yet. And I suspended it last weekend because I thought it was taking over my life and it was time to probably call a halt. Uh, but in fact, I continue to add to it. Rather, It's rather addictive. Uh, and, and of course, you've probably already guessed this, Rana. I'm going to write a book on the, on the basis of at least some of this material. It does look very much like history in the making. And I have to say, if you're ever going to invite people round for an evening viewing the slides, perhaps I might come in partway through the event rather than at the beginning, <laughs> considering how many there actually are. But having had a chance to flick through the, the deck, I found various things that actually seemed very relevant to historical perspective and somewhat surprising. So let me give you an example of what I found surprising. When you were talking about how to use other pandemics in history as comparators. The one that people tend to turn to at the moment, certainly seen in a lot of the, the quality press in the last few weeks, is the 1919 flu pandemic. And there's been a lot of discussion about that. You say at one point, or at least one of the notes says at one point, that actually thinking about 1957 to 58, the so-called Asian flu of that era, which is a known but not nearly as well-known a phenomenon as 1919, might be more useful. Why was that the historical comparator that you wanted us to think about? Well, 1918-19 is a, a pretty famous pandemic, as you say, Rana. It's the one that's probably come up most often once people realised it wasn't the Black Death that we were facing. And uh, this is probably the moment to clarify for anybody who's not sure that I'm not that Neil Ferguson, N-E-I-L Ferguson, the, the epidemiologist at uh, Imperial College, whose March 16th paper projected that without radical interventions and, and particularly lockdowns of economic life, the, the COVID-19 death toll could rise as high as half a million in the United Kingdom and 2.2 million in the United States. Now, he didn't say it explicitly, but that implied that this would be as bad as the 1918-19 influenza, which began uh, before the end of, of the First World War and carried on into into 1919 and indeed even into 1920 in some studies. This was a, a cataclysmic pandemic, one of the top 10 in history up there with the, the Black Death, though not, not as lethal in terms of the percentage of the world's population it killed, but it probably killed somewhere between 2 and 3% of of the world's population. It was a very deadly influenza uh, virus. It killed a very large proportion of the people that it infected. 
Uh, so the infection fatality rate was probably around two, maybe even higher. And its devastation was global. It was particularly deadly in India, as well as causing havoc in a number of South American and Central American countries. So when the other Neil Ferguson, the epidemiologist, published that paper, implying it was 1918-19, my immediate reaction was, it's not. It's just not. It's not that. It can't be that deadly. It would be obvious by now if it were that deadly. In addition to which, it's not 1918-19. We have medical uh, capabilities that they didn't have then. They really had very, very few ways of treating uh, people who became ill with that influenza. The other thing to know, know about 1918-19, which is worth mentioning, is that like all the influenza pandemics uh, in history, it killed the very young as much as it killed the very old, and it killed a really significant portion of people of prime age. In fact, one of the really awful things about 1918-19 was it swept through the armies that were contesting the war, beginning in the U.S. Army, and, and killed more American soldiers than the war its, itself. So it was already obvious in mid-March that COVID-19 wasn't doing that. It was disproportionately killing elderly people. That was already clear. Uh, so I began to suspect that the other Neil Ferguson had inadvertently drawn a wrong historical analogy. If you look back through modern pandemics, you can find some better analogues. And I think the best one is actually the 1957-58 influenza pandemic. Uh, just in terms of the proportions of people that COVID-19 is likely ultimately to kill, I think we're much closer to 57-58 in the sense that we're probably going to end up, I would guess, by the end of this year, with roughly 200,000 Americans dead of COVID-19. That would be my estimate. We're, we're a little over halfway there at this point. But if you go back to 57, 58, the death toll, according to the Centers for uh, Disease Control, was about 115,000. So if you scale for population, it looks like a comparable impact, at least in the United States. And I think that's also true if you look at the global impact. So I think 57, 58 is a much better analogy, uh, a less scary analogy, because, of course, there's a reason we don't remember 1957, 58. The reason is that it didn't actually have that big and that disruptive an impact on the world. And, and so I think it's probably worth trying to learn some lessons from that experience. One of them is that in the US, they did not do anything remotely like what we've done in response to this pandemic. There were no school closures. There were certainly no economic lockdowns. Life went on. There was excess mortality, but there was almost no real economic shock. So that's one of the obvious contrasts that one can, uh, one can identify with that comparison. I wonder, Neil, how much culture as part of history makes a difference too. The reason I ask that is that I had a piece in the Spectator magazine here in Britain a couple of weeks ago about why South Korea has been one of the countries that has been so successful in managing to prevent huge numbers of deaths. And without um, going into huge details about the article, amongst the things I looked at were not only the tech side, the fact that South Korea is so wired for the internet, but also the way in which its Confucian society, I think, changed the way that it thought about things like old people's homes and care homes and had a rather different way of putting them into legislation and the care that comes from them. So long-term as well as short-term issues coming together. What do you think that we have learnt about the importance, if anything, of national culture or regional culture in terms of how the pandemic's been controlled? And is there more that we could learn? Well, there is some research on this, and I touch on it towards the end of the monster deck. It's a, it's a early days in, in our thinking about this, but uh, a number of people have made this argument that there's some kind of difference in culture between, say, Confucian East Asians and individualistic and in not very disciplined Americans. I think it's not going to work, that kind of analysis. At least the, the studies I've seen so far don't really come to satisfactory results because, of course, there are uh, English-speaking countries like New Zealand, for example, that have handled COVID-19 just as well as, 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 as South Korea. And I don't think of New Zealanders as being especially Confucian. I'm pretty sceptical about these cultural explanations because there are better ones to hand. For example, the South Koreans, like the Taiwanese, had, had learned lessons from the experience of SARS and MERS. They had thought about coronaviruses as a problem. And they'd understood that the key response uh, to something like this, to a novel coronavirus, is very, very quickly to ramp up testing and contact tracing. And indeed, the Taiwanese did an even better job than the South Koreans when it came 
to contact tracing, which is why there have been virtually no fatalities in Taiwan. I think the number of fatalities from COVID-19 is eight at this point. South Korea had some super spreader events. This is a very important concept we should probably come back to. But because of its testing and contact tracing, it was able to get on top of them pretty quickly. And so what you see in countries like Taiwan and South Korea is that the government is equipped to play whack-a-mole with uh, with outbreaks, even if some citizens make foolish mistakes, as clearly happened in some of the super spreader events. Uh, what's really striking is the lack of these capabilities in a number of important countries. The United Kingdom and the United States stand out, but they're not alone in having handled COVID-19 badly. Belgium, Spain, Italy have had, in relative terms, comparably bad if not worse, experiences. So I think it, it really has much more to do with, did you learn the lessons of SARS and MERS? Israel's interesting because it seems to have learned the lessons. And I just made the argument earlier today in a Johns Hopkins conference that if you just look at the rankings of countries who performed well, what stands out is not a cultural pattern or, or for, for that matter, a political pattern. What stands out is that these countries are paranoid for a reason. Israel has reasons to be paranoid. Taiwan has reasons to be paranoid. Uh, South Korea has reasons to be paranoid. Their neighbours are not the nicest of, of neighbours. And that has just meant that their defences are superior across a whole range of, of different threat uh, types. And so I think that might be a better explanation than, than any cultural or, for that matter, political explanation for these great variant, this great variance in performance. It's a good point. It would also, of course, explain the fact that North Korea claims, I think, to this day that it hasn't had a single case of coronavirus on entirely reliable statistics, I'm sure, in, in every, uh, every form. Let's though, think a moment about policies, because you talk about countries that have handled it well and badly. And actually, the UK, which is where I'm sitting now, has been controversial because it does have a, very, a relatively pretty high rate per capita. But Sweden, of course, just uh, north of the continent here, took a very, very different policy. It decided to essentially not have a lockdown at all and has had a high rate, but actually not much higher than the UK, which did lock down very comprehensively. Does that UK-Sweden contrast show us anything that we, we need to understand? Yes, it does. I think the first thing is that the, the goal of herd immunity is a, is a questionable objective in the face of a pathogen uh, like SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, for a variety of, of reasons, one of which is it's just got this very low dispersion factor. This is the factor K in epidemiological jargon. A very small proportion of people do a very large amount of the spreading. Uh, there's also great uh, heterogeneity and susceptibility and vulnerability through the population. Whereas herd immunity sort of assumes a relatively homogenous population and you just need to get to a certain threshold of having had it and, you'll, and you're done. This is a very standard epidemiological model, but it doesn't really apply very well in this case, especially not if we find that, like other coronaviruses, SARS-CoV-2 can give you immunity, but not for long. And I think there's a growing concern that immunity will be a relatively short-lived thing, even for people who've, who've had it and uh, got better. Uh, this might also be a problem with, with vaccination. So herd immunity as, as a goal of policy, I think, was based on some erroneous analogies that, that public health experts in a number of European countries, including the UK and Sweden, were playing with, the main, main one being it's influenza. And I think what went wrong in, in Britain and perhaps also in Sweden was the belief that we were dealing with something quite similar to an influenza virus as opposed to being something quite different, namely a, a coronavirus. Uh, the other thing that's really striking here is that, uh, and this is something the Oxford Blavatnik School, your colleagues just down the road from you, have, have shown brilliantly, that there is no correlation between the stringency of government measures and outcomes, none at all. Uh, there's a correlation between the stringency of government measures and economic outcomes, but not outcomes in terms of the containment of the spread. And I think the Swedish-British comparison is fascinating because you end up at a very similar place in many ways, certainly in terms of cases relative to population. But Britain uh, conducts a complete U-turn in policy, ditches herd immunity, reads the other Neil Ferguson's report and panics. And Britain goes down the, the road of really drastic lockdowns, shutting down uh, the economy as completely as almost any country has done with as, a, as you can imagine, huge attendant costs. But the 
payoffs in terms of containment of the contagion have been pretty dis dismal. And if you take a measure like excess mortality, which is a pretty good measure, i.e. how much more death has there been than you would have expected on the basis of, say, the last five years, then April and May in Britain stand out as pretty horrendous by the standards of any developed country. Britain has had one of the highest excess mortality spikes of anywhere, apart from countries in Latin America like Peru that have had really disastrous experiences. So I think when we try to learn lessons from what's happened in Britain, and there'll really need to be a proper commission of inquiry, one of the most obvious lesson will be that the key to success with this particular pathogen was not really a particular strictness of, of policy. Uh, it had a lot more to do with the ways in which people adapted their behavior. Uh, and I, I think that that's probably where the conversation is going to go. Certainly in the literature that I read, we're seeing that in countries like uh, Taiwan and South Korea, it wasn't just that the government was doing testing and contact tracing well. It was also that citizens adapted their behavior. Mask wearing was very quickly adopted. Japan's an interesting case here, big, very big country, which has a very, very limited COVID-19 trouble, two orders of magnitude smaller in relative terms. Uh, why? Not really because the Japanese government did a brilliant job of testing and contact tracing. It didn't. Uh, but just because the Japanese population adapted very quickly, particularly with respect to mask wearing. So I think when we come back to understanding what's happened in Britain, part of the story is really a failure of behavior to adapt. And I think we still see that and we've seen the same in the United States. The difference, interestingly, Rana, is that in the United States, people have been itching to get back to normal, uh, especially people in red states, Republican states. What I see in Britain is actually something quite different. People are not in a hurry to get back to normal. They've actually been quite scared by what they've been told about the disease. And there isn't a great appetite, so far as I can see, to do anything other than to get back to the beach on a sunny day, not to get back to work. There may, of course, be other reasons why people are not tripping over themselves to get back to the office, but we perhaps shouldn't uh, delve too far into those personal motivations. But it does bring up the question, which you already mentioned, Neil, of the economy and how that's changed things. And you're, of course, speaking to us from the United States. And it does appear that more than any other country, and certainly more than the UK or any other European country, the, the pandemic has become a partisan issue. I mean, over here, we're reading these reports that essentially mask wearing, you've just mentioned, it's becoming, it's, it's compulsory here in Britain on public transport, for instance, and people are adapting without too much grumbling. And you wouldn't be able to, I think, pin that to any particular type of politics, particularly since the current government is, in fact, a conservative one. But that mask issue seems to be symbolic of a much bigger divide in the US between Democrats and Republicans. That's right, Rana. And it's, of course, part of our, our national story at the moment in the United States. Everything is a partisan issue. And uh, COVID-19 became one quite early on. Polling shows, and it has shown for several months, that Democrats worry much more about the disease cropping up in their neighborhood than Republicans do. The difference is absolutely massive. So uh, I have friends in various southern states. I was speaking to Philip Bobbitt, who's in Texas, right uh, uh, right now, only this morning, and he said to me he'd just been out uh, in in the neighbourhood. Nobody is wearing masks in Texas, and nobody's wearing masks in Georgia. And indeed, one of my friends, who's in fact a New Yorker, uh, is spending a plague year in Georgia. Was was commenting that he's harassed. Uh, he has to deal with with abuse when he wears a mask uh, in the stores. It's become a sign of being a a libtard, to use the argo of the far right. <laughs> to wear a mask. And that is, of course, something that President Trump has only encouraged by declining to wear a mask himself. So this this is part of the pathology of modern America, that, that even responses to a novel pathogen become partisan. It's interesting, actually, Rana, we, we've been doing some work on this at Greenmantle. The, the return of, of the normal mobility is something that helps us understand how quickly the economy is recovering. And thanks to Google and Apple and companies like SafeGraph, we have amazing high-frequency data on how much people are moving around as normal. And if you look at returns to uh, retail and recreation destinations, which are a reasonable proxy for consumer behavior, the fascinating thing is that if you go down to the county level, counties that lent Trump words back in 2016 have returned almost 
immediately. To, they're very close to normal in terms of mobility to re- recreational and retail uh, destinations. But counties that lent Democrat, that lent Clinton four years ago, have not. In fact, there's, there's about a 10 percentage point gap. And so what we're seeing here is actually a, a partisan recovery where uh, Republicans are recovering economically faster than Democrats and consequently a partisan second wave of infections. Because uh, in the states where these sort of trends are most pronounced, we're also seeing second waves of infection and, and hospitalization. And that is, I think that's really the big story of the last week or so. The realization that Americans, particularly Republicans supporting Americans, returning to normality are in fact uh, igniting a second wave of COVID-19. Let me pick up on one aspect of that, though, Neil, because one of the things that also surprised me from your your monster deck, as I think we're learning to to call it, was that while you're clearly not particularly impressed by the way in which President Trump has been engaging with the COVID crisis, you're not one of the people who actually puts the blame firmly on him in terms of it spreading as far as it has. You see a much more institutional reason in the US for why the disease spread as fast and as destructively as it has. So why was that? Well, I think it's worth saying, Rana, that the media on both sides of the Atlantic have done a shockingly bad job, sorry to any journalists listening, in covering the pandemic. They've made it almost all about a handful of personalities, Donald Trump in the United States, Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings in the UK. And this is just to misunderstand how public health emergencies work. The critical institutions are not right at the the people right at the top, the critical institutions are those responsible for public health. There are people with the job, in the case of the United States, the job of pandemic preparedness at the assistant secretary level in the Department of Health and Human Services. The guy's name is Robert Kadlec, and you've never heard of him because there's been almost no media coverage of his role. And what I found fascinating, and I delved into this with the encouragement of my old friend Philip Zelico, who uh, who sat and um, or was involved with the 9-11 Commission. Philip pointed me to the fact that the institutions whose job this was have failed. DHHS failed. CDC failed. I mean, the Center for Disease uh, Control was supposed to be responsible for ramping up testing in a situation like this. It did just the opposite. It actually held testing back in the early phase of the pandemic. So I think what most people have missed in their excessive focus on on President Trump, who's clearly made a series of pretty terrible judgments, what they've missed is that the real system failure happened much further down the chain of command with those parts of the bureaucracy we sometimes call it the deep state these days, responsible for pandemic preparedness. And one of the fascinating things is that on paper, the US and the UK were amongst the best prepared countries for a pandemic. On paper, there were endless reports. There were PowerPoint decks for that matter. In 2018, I think there was a 36-page pandemic preparedness report. I've plowed through it. It all reads very well. But when there actually was a pandemic, the bureaucracy failed completely. And I think that will be the subject, again, of, of future historical and probably also public public inquiry. I think this is a really, really important point. The great physicist Richard Feynman wrote a wonderful account of his role in the investigation into the great space shuttle Challenger disaster. It's a classic. Everyone should read it. Now, you couldn't really blame that, or at least not very easily, on Ronald Reagan, who was president at the time. But you have to actually read Feynman to see that the point of failure that led to the Challenger disaster was the mid-level NASA bureaucrats who ignored the warnings from the engineers who were saying again and again that there was a 100, one in a hundred chance that the thing would blow up. In the same way, there were plenty of people, I mean, I was one of them, warning that there was a real problem back in January. Um, but something went terribly wrong, just as it did with the challenger in the Department of Health and Human Services. And you can't pin that all on Trump. Indeed, to, to take a risk and say something in President Trump's defense, always a mistake with a predominantly European audience. Trump's instinct at the end of January was to close off travel from China. And he actually banned passengers 
from China from coming into the US. There was a huge wave of indignation in the liberal media about this. Endless pieces in the Washington Post and the New York Times, etc., saying what a dreadful piece of racism this was. The only thing wrong with Trump's decision was that it was about two weeks too late. He should really have stopped the planes coming from China about two weeks earlier in mid-January. By the end of January, it was too late. But on, his instincts there were not actually wrong, and he was castigated for it. Well, you mentioned China, Neil, and that brings up what looks to me at this moment as if it may be one of the great winners, if we could even use that expression, of the COVID-19 pandemic. Because three or four months ago in February, you will know this very well, not least because I know you keep an eye on these things. Chinese social media was really hitting on President Xi Jinping. There were people talking about the fact that it might be possible that his his grip on rule might be, be loosened in some way. Four or five months later, he's now clamping down in Hong Kong. The disease appears, as far as we can tell, to be broadly under control in China, although there are isolated flare-ups. China is now exercising what's become known as the the Janlang, the wolf warrior diplomacy, in which it basically is, you know, shouting at the world and doesn't really care what the world says back. Is it actually China and not the US that may end up coming out of this thinking we are the geopolitical masters now? Well, that is certainly the consensus view. I wish I had a Bitcoin for every article I've read in the last two months saying it's all over for the United States. Kishore Mahbubani was right. The Asian century is here. China is the winner. We've all had to learn from China. Authoritarian regimes turn out to be better than democracies. All this stuff has been said by many people, including very eminent people. In fact, I, I, I see a kind of revival of declinism in American journalism, lots and lots of arguments, almost cyclical theories of history predicting the downfall of, of the United States and, and the triumph of Xi Jinping. And I'm, I'm absolutely sure this will turn out to be wrong uh, for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, I think that the damage that this has done to China is a good deal greater than meets the Western eye. Not just in terms of the damage it has done to Xi Jinping's legitimacy, which I agree has ceased to be a major talking point, but actually, uh, I, I think it's more profound than that. I, I think that it's very difficult indeed now for China to sustain growth at the rates uh, it was planning to. And indeed, they had to, as you know, Rana, scrap their growth target for this year, which means they can't meet the the cherished objective of doubling GDP in 10 years. And in order to make the unemployment numbers look better, they've just re-legalized street vendors, uh, which is hardly the cutting edge of, of economic technology. So I think there's something quite seriously wrong uh, at the heart of the Chinese economy, apart from in that uh, high-tech online world where Chinese companies are in many ways the equals of the big tech companies of Silicon Valley. The, the rest of the Chinese economy is, I think, in serious trouble. And the fact that they just about had to shut down Beijing last week because of a new outbreak uh, should not be dismissed lightly. Whack-a-mole is going to make it very hard for the Chinese economy to have anything like a, a V-shaped recovery. And they're going to be playing whack-a-mole with this virus, uh, I think, into next year. Uh, the second thing I'd, I'd say is that the wolf warrior diplomacy, which you alluded to, this extraordinarily shrill tone that some younger Chinese diplomats have, have adopted, I think is a sign of, of a dangerous hubris. It hasn't worked very well. In fact, they succeeded in alienating the French and the Germans completely with their, uh, their social media antics back at the height of the pandemic in, in Europe. But I think more seriously, what worries me at the moment is that they are underestimating the United States. And they are, I think, embarking on what could be a very risky strategy, not so much with respect to Hong Kong, which I don't think is the key flashpoint, but with respect to Taiwan. And I think the general tendency, which you now see in Chinese social media, and you will know this better than I do, uh, is to disparage Trump, to mock him, to, to uh, suggest that he's a kind of Manchurian candidate who's helping China on its way to dominance. I think this could lead to some very serious miscalculations. I think the second half of 2020 is going to see a major geopolitical crisis, probably over Taiwan. And I think that the Chinese are, are taking a major risk if they think that they could, in fact, simply take over Taiwan, solve their problem, which is, of course, that they rely heavily on semiconductors from the Taiwanese company TSMC and get away with it because Trump is a busted flush. I think this is the risk that China runs, that it's actually going to 
make a, a major geopolitical mistake. And I sense that the, the atmosphere in Beijing is very conducive to that kind of miscalculation. I'm sure that's, uh, that's right, Neil. We, we should move in just a moment or two to audience questions. But since we're on this subject, I'll add, first of all, that there are, of course, voices in China, most recently in public, uh, the foreign minister, vice foreign minister, Fu Ying, also the Chinese ambassador in the US, Tui Tian Kai, who've actually spoken up quite strongly against this very shrill, really aggressive wolf warrior rhetoric and have pointed out it's doing China no good. So that may indicate at least some level of internal unease about the way in which that's that's going. The last question I, I throw at you, because I think it's one that will be occupying all of us in a few months' time, whether we want it or not, is do you think that a Trump victory or a Biden victory makes any difference when it comes to the US-China relationship? And just for the kicker on that, what do you think that US-China relationship is likely to be in the next, let's say, two to three years? Well, I think it's going to make less of a difference than might be assumed by Europeans who tend to hate on Republican presidents and, and like Democrats. At the moment, if anything, the Biden campaign is trying to sound more hawkish than Trump on China. They're making much of the obviously very embarrassing revelations of John Bolton's new book, which make it clear that Trump privately in meetings with Xi Jinping is prepared to make all kinds of concessions in order to enhance his chances of re-election. But I think the most telling piece of evidence in this respect uh, is a recent article by Michel Flournoy in Foreign Affairs. Michel is likely to be, if there is indeed a Biden victory, Secretary of Defense. The tone of this piece was, if anything, more hawkish than some of the things one hears from the Republican side. It was a very, very clear statement that the United States needs to be able to deter China, areas like the Taiwan Strait or the South China Sea. And the critique of the Trump administration was that it wasn't being tough enough on those issues. Added to which, I think the Biden administration would be bound to be more concerned about human rights issues, Democrats always are. Think back to Bill Clinton and the, the butchers of Beijing. So I think that Biden will try to run as a more hawkish candidate than, than Trump on the China issue. And remember, the American public is in a hawkish mood. And there's been a huge shift in sentiment on China in the last couple of years, I think largely, in fact, because Donald Trump has led it. Uh, it's ironic that he now finds himself on the defensive on this issue, especially given Joe Biden's record as, as vice president under Barack Obama, who in the end gave up on the idea of a pivot to Asia and any real containment of, of China's rise. So I, I think the one thing to, to, to emphasize here is that there'll be a change on trade policy. I'm pretty sure that the Democrats would resurrect the TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership, and uh, ditch the whole idea of using tariffs as a, as a way of achieving any, any progress with China. But on the broader issue of what I call Cold War II, which I think has now been going for at least a couple of years, I don't think Cold War II is going to end if Joe Biden is inaugurated in January. And, and it stays cold, you think, rather than going further? The war? Well, I think the risk of, of a Cold War is always that it can get hot. That was what made the Cold War so nerve-wracking when it was the Soviet Union on the other side. And my sense is that there is a potential for a hot war, most likely over Taiwan. Graham Allison, my former colleague at Harvard, just published a good piece in National Review saying that the sanctions on Huawei that the Commerce Department announced uh, a few weeks back, which will come into effect in September, are comparable to the oil embargo imposed on Japan by the US in 1941, which of course was the thing that drove Japan, as you know better than anyone, to the reckless gamble of, of war that began with Pearl Harbor. I, I think this is a really interesting analogy. And, and it's true that when you, when you think about the issue that could really trigger a hot war, that Taiwan has, has all the hallmarks of a casus belli, not least of which is the fact that that the US doesn't really have a credible deterrent strategy. Here, Michel Flournoy is almost certainly right. And if you read a book like Christian Ambrose's new, new book, The Kill Chain, he basically says the same. Right now, the US has a commitment to the defense of Taiwan that it can no longer credibly enforce because US aircraft carrier groups would be very vulnerable to anti-ship missiles fired from the Chinese mainland. It, it's always those situations, isn't it, Rana, that lead to war when the, the rising power isn't actually adequately deterred by the incumbent power. And that's why it's Taiwan that worries me the most. 
The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. And I think we've now got our entire audience extremely nervous, Neil. Perhaps it's just where, uh, where you want them at this, this point. And they are certainly firing in questions, uh, just like uh, a, uh, an assault battery on the coast of Taiwan, one might say, uh, at least if things go really, really badly. So let's get straight to our audience's questions. And the first one comes in from uh, Joseph Clemo, who actually is asking a very historically informed question. And the specific is, was the Black Death a possible cause of the Renaissance? Then he follows up, and do major social changes, which are presumably caused by disease or other major disasters, actually have long-lasting effects? This is a, a great question and really requires a medievalist to answer it, it properly. I'll, I'll have a, a go as an, an amateur. I mean, many of the things that, that we call the Renaissance, that we associate with the, the Italian city-states, were already underway prior to the 1340s. Uh, if you think, say, of, of, of Siena uh, and what has al- had already been achieved there, both in terms of, of, of politics uh, as well as political thought, the Renaissance had, had, had started. And in that sense, the Black Death was a huge interruption of, of intellectual life. Uh, of course, it gave creative opportunity to Boccaccio, but I think on, on balance, the effects of the Black Death were negative, not, not positive. There were whole cities that essentially were, were depopulated, towns that, that had a, a population collapse to near zero, and even the big cities, uh, Venice uh, uh, and Florence, for example, suffered really heavy mortality because, of course, there was no real understanding of what it was that, that was causing these outbreaks of, of, of bubonic plague. So it's hard to believe that, on balance, the Black Death was, was somehow good for cultural development. It, it had all kinds of important effects that I'll mention Two, uh, by creating massive labour shortages, it, it de- definitely had the effect of, of at least improving the bargaining power of, of Europe's uh, peasant population. Although efforts to, to, to resist those bargaining efforts, uh, those bargaining moves led to, led to conflict in, in England, culminating in the, in the peasants' revolt, all, all sorts of uh, 
of, of things that I studied as an undergraduate at Oxford and haven't really worked on since. So I tread warily and defer to the experts. Uh, the, sec the second thing, of course, is that in trying to understand how to manage a, a pandemic, the Black Death taught city-states in particular, but states more generally, the importance of being able to enforce quarantines, the term dates from that, that period, and, and manage flows of people. So some increase in state capacity followed uh, followed from the Black Death. But the, the final part of your question is the broader one, which I'm probably better equipped to answer. Do pandemics have uh, big cultural consequences? And I, I think here, you, you know, it's a really interesting question because some do and some don't. I know that's a rather lame, lame observation, but you, you'd struggle to find any lasting consequences of the 1957-58 uh, influenza pandemic. On the other hand, I think there are some evidence that 1918 did have an impact. Uh, one paper I read recently made the point that in countries that had really been hammered by the 1918-19 influenza pandemic, levels of trust of social capital were reduced for a generation or, or, or more. Um, I'll, I'll add one point, uh, one final point. The cultural consequences of the HIV-AIDS pandemic a much slower moving pandemic than COVID-19, but a deadlier one to date are, I think, worth reflecting on. If we try to ask ourselves, how will our lives be changed by COVID-19 for the, the long term? I think the answer will be that COVID-19 will be to our social lives what HIV AIDS was to sexual life. Uh, that is to say, it will modify behavior, but not enough. Safe sex did not become universal. That's why ultimately more than 30 million people have died of AIDS uh, in the last three decades. And I don't think there will ever be safe social life. So that as long as COVID-19 is around and we don't have a vaccine and we don't have effective therapies, then there will be outbreaks and there will be mortality. So that, that seems like the best answer I can give to that question. And by the way, um, add that if anyone hasn't read it, uh, an absolute classic from about 40, 50 years ago, W.H. McNeil's Plagues and People is one of the first books that really set historians on the road to understanding how disease and social change, often positive social change, could interact. Now, let's go back to the questions which are, are coming in here, Neil. And here's one. Now, this is much more directly on your historical expertise, so no, uh, no sashaying away from this one, I think. And it's from Harvey Toomey. The question is... I have heard you, Neil, recently draw comparison with China today and Imperial Germany over a century ago. Could you expand on this, not least because I've seen Bob Kagan has been using this comparison for quite some time now. So over to Harvey's question, I think, Neil. And not only Bob Kagan, but also Henry Kissinger. If you remember in On China, Kissinger concludes with the Air Crow Memorandum and very explicitly suggests that uh, the United States and China might risk replaying the history of uh, of the United Kingdom and, and Germany, which produced the the War of 1914. So this is a this is a really interesting historical analogy and and one that I've written about myself. I think this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, Rana, the 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 mood in in Beijing and that possible hubris that that one one sees at least amongst some. Chinese uh, diplomats. That's very Wilhelmine. And, and, and Wilhelmine Germany had a number of, of rather Chinese, modern Chinese characteristics, uh, not only a, a sort of explicit desire for world policy, which I think Xi Jinping has, has made very much a, a part of his, his act. Uh, one Belt, One Road is the, the, the kind of Chinese equivalent of of Weltpolitik. Also, this sense that if you have domestic social tensions, if inequality is an issue, then what better way to distract people's attention than to bestride the globe and assert your, your geopolitical parity with the dominant English-speaking superpower? From a British vantage point, what made us nervous about Germany before 1914 was partly the extraordinary speed of the German economy's growth, the, the sense that technologically they were pulling ahead, the ubiquity of made in Germany on the goods that the people purchased in pre-1914 Britain. Well, that sounds distinctly familiar. For Americans, made in China has played much the same role. And the sense of falling behind China technologically is, is I think, one of the things that haunts Americans when they contemplate 
the rise of China. So I, I do think this is a, a useful analogy, maybe the best of the analogies in Graham Allison's book, Destined for War. If there is a Thucydides trap that the United States and China are heading towards, it does look a lot like the one that Britain and Germany fell into just over a 100 years ago. If China and Russia become increasingly dominant and they carve up the globe, Russia to Europe, for instance, and I guess China to Asia, would they avoid conflict or would an actual conflict emerge between the two of them sooner rather than later? This is a, a great question. And it, it reminds us that the, the geopolitical consequences of a pandemic are often the hardest to predict. Historically, it's worth saying that, that pandemics had, were more likely to stop wars than to start them. Armies that had to throw in the towel because of typhus are very numerous in the history books. Uh, but I think in the modern era, this is less of a, a constraint. And I, I do sense that one of the things we're seeing at the moment is geopolitical risk-taking by Russia as well as by China. Now, they are uh, as close together as, as they have ever been from a geopolitical standpoint. The relationship between Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping is really one of the strongest though I'm sure it is a marriage of convenience, not of love. And I do think that the Russians have been teaching the Chinese a thing or two in the last four years about information warfare, because we're seeing the Chinese engage in very Russian-style tactics on social media these days. So I think one should assume that they are a very tight partnership right now. And the big worry from a US point of view is that any move that the Chinese may, may make in East Asia would probably be matched by a Russian move. Maybe in the Baltic states, uh, that would be very risky for Putin, more likely in North Africa and the Middle East, where the Russians are already running riot. After all, the partition of Libya is one of the less well-covered events of 2020, but it's essentially happening between Russian proxies and Turkish proxies. And I think from Putin's point of view, the discovery, which dates back to the Obama administration, that the post-American Middle East was going to be a place where Russia could be a power broker has really been a very important development and much underrated by, by analysts of the geopolitical scene. Now, I don't think Russia are going to triumph. I actually think the weaknesses of both these states are going to become much more visible. And in a few years' time, people will say, oh, that Neil Ferguson was very prescient when he said that Wuhan was China's Chernobyl, wasn't he? But for now, I'm going to be the contrarian who says this is doing more damage to China than to the United States. I don't actually expect any good to come of Russo-Chinese risk-taking, I think it will backfire on them because they're underestimating the US's capabilities and they're underestimating the alliance systems, which will hold up despite Donald Trump's obvious disdain for them. Ultimately, it's very hard to believe that Russia and China will be a marriage that lasts. There are all kinds of suspicions on each side for obvious historical reasons. So one of the other things I would anticipate is that when it all goes wrong, and I think it will go wrong for Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, that particular partnership will geopolitically come to an end. Just one very quick follow-up on that thought, which has to do actually with something you mentioned earlier, uh, Neil, which is the idea of China's Belt and Road as Weltpolitik. A large part of the first phase of China's Belt and Road initiative actually is Russia's backyard. It's the Stans, it's Central Asia. Yes. And surely that must be a potential conflict point between them, well, not necessarily in terms of hot war, but in terms of that lack of trust that you were mentioning. And that's what, if you talk to Russians privately, they most dislike about the Xi-Putin bromance. They sense that really gains that Russia made going all the way back to the 19th century are being eroded by, by China. And because Putin has committed himself in Ukraine, in Syria, and now in Libya, he has absolutely nothing that he can do. He has to suck it up if the Chinese decide to assert themselves in Russia's historic backyard. And I do think that's the fatal flaw of Putin's grand strategy, frankly. I would just say that when I'm in private conversations with the Russians after the third bottle of vodka, I remember nothing about what they've said, geopolitical or otherwise. <laughs> but moving hastily on to Marcelo's question, Neil, I think I'm not breaking any secrets here to say that you are an expert on money and its history. And Marcelo's question is, how do you think monetary policy and the concept of money will evolve after the pandemic? E.g., do you think that helicopter money will become an acceptable response? Is there going to be more virtual, more digital? Where do you see the, the next of money, if my steal your phrase may, may go. Well, I had a fascinating conversation on this very subject yesterday with Raoul Pal at Real Vision. I, th I think this is a kind of financial revolution that we're living through, and it predates 
the the pandemic, but the pandemic's accelerating it in various ways. Let me pick out three. The first is that because of the economic shock that uh, the pandemic caused, amplified by lockdowns, policies that used to be regarded as fringe, uh, kind of marginal, become mainstream. In effect, we are doing modern monetary theory. In effect, we are doing universal basic income. Central banks are not quite monetizing debt in the old sense, because uh, what they're doing when they buy bonds, as in the financial crisis, is to pay with a special kind of money, which is uh, bank reserves, interest-bearing bank reserves. It's not as if they're really dropping the money from the sky, metaphorically. But we've certainly moved in the direction of dropping money from the sky, most obviously in, in China, where citizens are essentially just given digital spending power and told to go off and use it in an attempt to generate consumption. Uh, the second financial revolution that I think we're seeing is that online banking, online financial activity is going to displace traditional branch banking, and it's going to do it very rapidly in some places. Because the truth is, you really don't need to go into the branch of NatWest to do uh, your basic financial transactions. You can do it all perfectly well online uh, with a decent uh, neobank. That, that, that's definitely being speeded up by the by the pandemic and and finally i think the fascinating sort of development is that cryptocurrencies which uh, some people were writing off just a few years ago after the bitcoin bubble burst are in fact uh, benefiting from the great uncertainty that's been been aroused particularly in some in some parts of the world where it's not clear that the basic institutions of of, uh, of government will withstand the pandemic. And so you see that Bitcoin has been a pretty good store of value, comparable, in fact, to gold in 2020, uh, contrary to the predictions of people who just a couple of years ago were were predicting that Bitcoin would go to zero. That, that I knew would be wrong. And I, I said it would be wrong in my updated Ascent of Money, which was published in 2018. Incidentally, Rana, the new edition of the Ascent of Money, which had two new chapters covering the, year, the years from Lehman Brothers all the way to 2018, concluded by predicting correctly that the next big crisis would come from China. What I didn't uh, foresee that it would take the form of uh, of a novel coronavirus. Well, like Dominic Cummings, perhaps you could always go back, reprint all the versions and then send them out again as if they'd been the original. It is alleged, he says hastily. <laughs> still a bit of time and still definitely questions coming in. And actually linked to your last point, Neil, there's a rather a nice follow-on here that comes from Charlie. And that is, what do you think the political consequences will be for the UK going forward, by which he means... It's a conservative government or so, that's the label on the tin. But in fact, it seems to be operating post-war socialism style government. And of course, we've heard that both Michael Gove and now I think Boris Johnson have been citing FDR as their new economic and, and political pinup as to where the UK is, is going next. Did you predict that at the end of uh, Ascent of Money? I, I didn't. Uh, I must confess, foresee that Boris Johnson, my old Oxford contemporary, would become prime minister and that he would go with remarkable speed from hero to zero because of a, of a, a pandemic originating in Wuhan. I'm not Nostradamus, for God's sake. Uh, but I think what's fascinating about the, the, the consequences for Britain is that uh, they don't need to play out politically for such a long time. In the United States, the day of reckoning is just months away. Uh, but because of the fixed term Parliament's Act, Boris can go through a period of intense unpopularity and still be prime minister, and unless, of course, the clearly very ambitious Rishi Sunak finds out some some way of of knifing him and uh, and pushing him to one side. I do think if 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 I were if I were Boris, I'd be a little worried about uh, having promoted Rishi Sunak so rapidly. One sure way to become popular in the United Kingdom is to send people a lot of money for not working, and that uh, has been the key, I think, to Rishi Sunak's meteoric rise. As I mentioned earlier, it's not as if the great British public is itching to get back to work, unlike their American counterparts. So the Conservatives have, have landed themselves, yeah, you might say, with uh, its Tory, Tory men and not so much Whig measures as distinctly progressive, if not in some respects, socialist measures. And the challenge is going to be, how do you wind this down when you can finally say with a sigh of relief that the pandemic is over or at least that you've managed to to contain it. And nobody has a good answer to that, that question. My own view is that sooner or later, all countries will, will have to reckon with the very large debts that they've accumulated. 
which which I, I think cannot be financed at current nominal rates indefinitely. It just seems to me highly implausible that we'll have these rates forever. And at some point, we're going to be back to the old arguments that we used to have in the, in the days of George Osborne, remember him, about what it was that you would have to do to bring public finances back onto a sustainable path. I predict we'll be having those arguments within the Conservative Party in the next couple of years. And let's face it, now, uh, you know, Keir Starmer has lots of time to practice for the role of Tony Blair, which at some point I suspect he's going to take on the centrist leader who's sufficiently palatable to the middle class that he can be prime minister. But it's frustrating for him. He's got a long way ahead of him. And, and opposition is just, it's just a lot less fun than, than government. Although it does appear that Keir Starmer, at least in his first few weeks, is having quite a lot of fun with it, perhaps a bit uh, a bit more than people came to expect. We will see how he and Boris Johnson face off against each other for quite some number of years to come. We and our audience here, I think, could carry on for ages and ages, but I think time is going to defeat us. So I'm going to... Thank Neil, Neil Ferguson, very much indeed for having spent an hour with us to give us his insights from history, from the present day, and even about the future. As he has pointed out, he is not Nostradamus. Nostradamus had a much longer beard than you did, uh, Neil. Yours is much more trim <laughs> and suave and svelte in every way, I should add. But in terms of giving us food for thought and the material for plenty more Intelligence Squared conversations and, of course, books to read, we're very grateful to have had your time. It's wonderful that so many people from around the world have joined joined us tonight at Intelligence Squared. And many thanks to Intelligence Squared, who also are in a lockdown of their own. They can't, uh, we can't hold live uh, Intelligence Squared events at the moment, but these online events are becoming a bit of sort of an invented tradition, I suppose. And it's very, very good we have them as well. So thank you, everyone who's joined us tonight. I'm now going to hand back to Chris from Intelligence Squared.